The Department of Justice is tasked with enforcing the law, defending the interests of the United States and ensuring public safety. This is no small task. It takes a team of committed public servants to support this mission. Joining us today with a special announcement is Associate U.S. Attorney General Vanita Gupta. She's the third highest ranking official in the Department of Justice. A friend to the Fraternal Order of Police, Vanita has a long history of working with law enforcement to build support for policing and a common sense approach to criminal justice. I'm Patrick Hughes, National President of Fraternal Order of Police, and this is The Blue View. Well, Vanita, thank you for joining us for The Blue View. It's an honor to have you here today. Uh, for our listeners, can you give a little bit of your background? Sure. I am. First of all, I am honored to be here with you, Pat, and really appreciate uh, being invited. I was born in, in Philadelphia. Uh, my parents are there now and uh, have strong roots there and have been in Washington, D.C. for the last 11 years with my husband and rat two rascals, the 10-year-old and the 13-year-old boys uh, who've largely grown up in Washington, D.C., uh, and this is, as you know, my second stint at the Justice Department, but my relationship with the FOP is really special and important to me, and which is why I'm honored to be here today. Well, let, let's talk about the relationship. Yeah, you've had uh, a number of titles over the years. Uh, you did some time with the Department of Justice in the Civil Rights se section before. And But I, I, I really, I'd like to talk about that journey, uh, you know, really this partnership uh, of all the stakeholders involved in, in, in trying to advance and, and improve the criminal justice system. It's something that you certainly embrace. Can you just, just share a little bit about where does that drive come from and, and what is your experience of, of including all of these stakeholders? I and mean, more importantly, the, the FOP and in, in, in discussing these really important issues that are facing our nation. Yeah, so I when I first learned that I would be appointed to head up the Civil Rights Division in 2014, uh, one of the first calls I made, actually, even before I went to the Justice Department, was to our friend Jim Pascoe. Uh, and I reached out to him, really, because I had heard so much about his own work in the space and how important the FOP is to the Justice Department. And I wanted to reach out to him both to introduce myself, but also at the time, as you know, in 2014, there was a lot of unrest and kind of tension in the country around policing, criminal justice, uh, and, um, and race. And I wanted to be able to reach out to Jim just to say, look, you always have my cell phone. Uh, we need to work on these issues together. And I always want the perspective of officers to inform what it is that I am doing on the job to make sure that it informs the work of the Justice Department. And really, since then, um, both through Jim as like the, the line of continuity uh, with then President Canterbury and now with you, uh, you know, we've had such a good and close relationship. I talk to Jim many times a week. I see you at meetings all the time. Uh, we've, you know, you and I had the chance to sit down and talk about mental health uh, and officer wellness just several months ago, but then seeing each other last week to talk about gun violence. This work and the work that I do, whether it was in my former role or now as Associate Attorney General, um, it really depends on the perspectives of officers in the street, the membership of the FOP, helping to inform the resources we bring, the funding we're giving out, uh, the enforcement work. And so all through my time at Justice, that relationship has mattered. And I, I will just, you know, to get really concrete, Pat, about one instance. I remember, uh, you know, in Baltimore, this was in my prior stint, 
after Freddie Gray, um, after he had died in police custody, I went to Baltimore and met with his family. But I also went to the hospital to visit with officers, one of whom had had a brick thrown in his face during the violence of um, in, back in, in 2015. And I came back to the Justice Department and Jim and I were talking and he told me that the Baltimore FOP had actually done a pretty significant report about problems uh, that had really been triggered by decisions made by elected officials that had forced a certain type of policing, quota-based policing in the streets of Baltimore that FOP members had said had corroded the relationship. And that information, uh, the president of the Baltimore FOP came to the Civil Rights Division. I went to the lodge in Baltimore. We spent a lot of time really talking to each other. I was listening more than anything, and I was hearing kind of what the perspectives were of officers um, in Baltimore. And it made the work that we were doing so much more informed, better informed, so that we were actually kind of listening to stories and off the experiences of officers while talking to community members. It was it was really important. That's just a concrete example from my time before about why this relationship actually really matters. You know, I think we look across this country and we see a lot of uh, cities that are struggling. And, and the, the one commonality of all of these cities that are struggling is their inability to be able to sit down and have that meaningful discussion yeah. with all of the stakeholders, including including, uh, you know, Fraternal Order Police and, and their labor unions. So uh, I, I appreciate that. You know, one thing that you've always been a champion for is also the right to due process. Uh, working through civil rights, you work through with civil rights groups and at the same time working with law enforcement and recognizing the importance of, of due process in really aspect of all of our lives. And, and it certainly applies to law enforcement officers as well. Uh, we're talking about protecting, you know, the civil rights of, uh, of of people in communities. Well, certainly we, we're all engaged in that, but law enforcement officers have civil rights, too. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that due process, uh, the importance of due process and, and how that plays into to decisions that you've made when both in civil rights and, and where we are now? Yeah, I am a uh, lifelong believer in that the fact that the Constitution has no meaning without due process. Uh, it may be informed by the fact that I have uh, represented people who were accused of different things. Um, I have represented people uh, in cases early on in my career where they were later found to be innocent and declared innocent by the legal system. And it's really shaped my own belief that regardless of where you sit in society and what your profession is, whether you are popular or unpopular, whether you're demonized or not, that every single person, the Constitution, if it's going to have any meeting, needs to afford due process uh, to every single person. That's the kind of beauty of our legal system. But it's one that can sometimes be shortcut when people are making assumptions about what this person did or who this person is. And so, you know, this is something that I think I have talked at length with you about. I've talked about it with Jim, that in any type of process or procedure that the Justice Department engages in, but also kind of outside, that due process for officers is crucial. Officers need to have notice of uh, of accusations that may be made. They need to, There needs to be a process by which people's views and perspectives are heard, and that is at the core of our legal system, and it's something that I will defend uh, until the end. Yeah, and, and you have, and, and the open dialogue that we've had, the ability to be able to weigh in on these issues. I know Fraternal Order Police, we certainly, on behalf of our members, we, we thank you for, for hearing our voices as well and allowing us to be part of solutions to, to, these, uh, to these real issues. And, and it's, yeah. it's incumbent upon all of us to, to get it right uh, and, and be meaningful for, for all involved. Uh, the quality of our communities is dependent on it. And, and I'm convinced when we all, 
we all agree and commit ourselves to to find you know to to to, to have a certain outcome and that is improve the quality of life in in each one of our communities and make them safer if we're all committed to doing that there's really not a whole lot we can't accomplish if we all if we all work together to do so. I think that's absolutely right. And it sounds, it can sound trite. It can sound like a bunch of like blah, blah when we talk about it. But actually when it comes down to it, it's it's so true. I find the greatest struggles that I have on this job are when people are, people are backed into their corners and we aren't listening to each other and that people are making a lot of assumptions about where kind of the other side is or what the perceptions are. You know, I remember... Uh, in early on in my tenure now as associate attorney general, really realizing that this this whole thing that we've done as a country, which is to put so many social problems at the feet of police and expect officers to be able to solve for them, meaning, you know, mental health issues and substance use disorder um, and, and you name it, that we've like just decided that uh, to, to kind of you know, not have community-based solutions and kind of wipe away that responsibility, but put it all at the feet of police, that actually that's something that is a shared concern across from police officers. The FOP obviously has been leading the charge and making this known to policymakers, to community activists, and that if we can kind of hear each other a little bit more and come together on trying to devise solutions on this, that there is ways to actually drive progress forward. And I, this is something that's really important. I remember uh, you know, um, Jim used to tell me I would go speak to your executive board, or I remember traveling down to Atlanta to the labor summit just to talk through these issues. And when you start to really break them down, to be able to just hear perspectives, I think there's a lot that is very underappreciated about policing, and in particular, the challenges of the last two years, right? You've the pandemic, uh, COVID impacted the kind of increased social tension and polarization around the country, the rise in violent crime in certain cities. That sometimes we can, if, if we're just talking about the problems, we're not driving to solutions. And when we're thinking about solutions, the importance of hearing all perspectives and, and really thinking about, like, how can we fund these solutions? How can we support officers? How can we support community-based, uh, uh, you know, um, programming to take some of these responsibilities away from officers and allow them to focus on violent crime? This is the type of thing that we need to be doing all the time. Uh, but it may be in too many places we still are trying to break down the, the kind of distrust even to get us in a conversation together. Yeah, law enforcement uh, is, is, is really in a precarious situation here. If you look across the country, everybody points to law enforcement and they say that really it is, it's the, the root of all problems in, in cities across this country. But uh, the reality is, is there are so many, so many elements to a quality community uh, that, that have nothing, zero, to do with law enforcement. Uh, you know, law enforcement is not responsible for poverty and broken family units, uh, struggling school systems and all of these things that contribute to the quality of life. But uh, it, it does create a lot of frustration because I think that law enforcement is is that uh, that branch of the government that everyone touches. And because of that, we, we, we kind of take it. And, and, and you are so correct that we're never going to police ourselves out of this problem. What we're going to have to do is we're going to have to sit down as a community talk about all of these important factors and how we're going to address we, each one of them. And if we don't, if we have a solution that doesn't, in, that doesn't include the, all of these factors, then it's a flawed process to start with. I, I totally agree. And I think the federal government has uh, kind of been partly to blame too. We kind of have these silos where, you know, the Justice Department funds law enforcement, we fund programs, but we don't always speak to health and human services and deal with the healthcare disparities. We don't always work with the Department of Education to figure out how can we better fund schools, right. create jobs, 
you know, and that type of thing. And we think we're learning more about this, but there is this tendency to kind of break these things down into silos. And that ultimately is going to prove short-sighted and ineffective given that communities are often the kind of product of all of these systems and not just law enforcement. And I think you're right. A lot of, you know, the first line of contacts a lot of people have in some communities with government is with law enforcement. And so that is, that is the kind of limited face of what are often much deeper problems that require more holistic solutions. You know, I want to, you mentioned something earlier, and I, I really I want to make sure that, uh, that we talk about it because I think it's so vitally important. I, I see, I see two crises coming in law enforcement. Uh, I'm just going to change gears just, just slightly. And, you know, over the last two years, especially the last 18 months, things have really been uh, tenuous for law enforcement. Uh, and it's this whole process of trying to, trying to navigate through the, I, I, I firmly believe there are a lot of people in this country that are more interested in the, in the problem than they are finding a solution. And, and as a result, law enforcement in, in many cases have been, has been demonized. Um, and that has caused two major crises. The first one that I see and one that I, I, I've been signaling the alarm for quite some time that uh, we have a serious uh, manpower concern for law enforcement yeah. that is not going to end overnight. Yeah. Uh, and I'll I just uh, gonna give you an example. Um, we are seeing law enforcement officers in this present climate leaving this profession at a rate so high that we've never witnessed before in any time, in any time in our history, uh, where officers are, are you know, eligible for retirement and leaving. But equally as important, people who are experienced law enforcement officers are just simply saying, you know what, there's a more stable uh, profession out there for me and my family that I, I just I'm, I'm so disgusted with where we are right yeah. now that I'm going to leave this profession and go somewhere else. If you look at the amount of experience that's walking out of the door, in contrast to the fact that the demonization of law enforcement has put us in a precarious situation, that next line, that next group, that best and brightest, that are ones that are going to help mold law enforcement for the future, they're just simply not taking this job. So that's that's our first problem. I see us, the problem is, is if we decided today, if everyone loved law enforcement starting today, and, uh, you know, they, they were 20, there were 100 people deep for every open position we have in, in every law enforcement position in this country, and we hired them today. It's five years before we fix that problem. Yeah, no, look, I call this a crisis. I think that we are at a staffing crisis. There's a morale crisis. There's a staffing crisis. And it's all, you've talked about some of the reasons yeah. behind it. And I think there's no question. It's why... Uh, you know, it's really important that the president's budget actually asks for historic raises in the amounts of funding and support for uh, law enforcement, including for the hiring of officers. So there's been an effort, the, F the 23 budget um, is asking for doubling the size of the cops office 30, budget. Almost 38 billion. Yes, yes. almost 38 yes. billion. It's un it's historic. We There's never it been is. a budget that's been it this has. high. And you know, last year we were able with the money that we had to put a thousand new officers out on the street. We want to put, and we know we need to get many more. And there's a, as you said, a retention problem going on. So it's not just the recruitment at the front end, which is really, I think, driven by many of the things that you were talking about, but also kind of a retention issue. There's a lot of, and I'm not going to say this to you, but we're, we, we see it all the time, the stress, the trauma, the, the kind of impact of the, doing these jobs. And I don't think that we have been able to provide enough support. There still remains a stigma around these issues. It's a stigma that exists, you know, 
in our society writ large, yeah. but certainly for officers who are supposed to be kind of the strong pillars in our communities, that there is still remains too high of a stigma. And so we need to tackle this, understand this. We need to put more resources behind it. Uh, that's why I think it's really important that our budget is calling for m like many millions of dollars more to actually fund these programs around the country. We've got to figure out, is there loan repayment? We need to get really creative yeah. as well as how do we lift up the profession? And, you know, my youngest son, my 10 year old has for the, as long as I've known him wanted to be a police officer. And I have like been wanting to know, like, how, are these forces around and kind of the noise he hears around, do they, does it affect him? And, but this, this notion of like, how do we build up this, you know, you know, make folks and this, the, the demonization while recognizing the need for accountability and constitutional policing. But we want our kids to want to, to enter the profession. So there's a lot of different things that I think we need to work on together. Uh, and I view it, and I know the attorney general and the deputy attorney general do, as a major priority for, for our communities. And that's a good segue into the the next uh, crisis that I, that I saw. And you, and you mentioned to earlier, and I was glad that you brought it up, because I think it, it's it's something that's so vitally important. We've seen so much change, and you know, we're recognizing, you know, law enforcement officers are ordinary people that are are called upon to do some pretty extraordinary things at times. And at times, and and sometimes the weight of the world can make even the strongest of knees buckle. Yeah. And and we're often referred to as a thing rather than people. Mm -hmm. And in reality, that's who we are. We work in communities. We raise our families. We we, you know, we we we, we have the same struggles that everyone else has. Yet, law enforcement officers are finding themselves at exposure to some things that are that are are really not healthy you know the the average person in, in in the united states some studies suggest that they may have two traumatic events in their lifetime and we know that a traumatic event can change somebody both physically and mentally there's no question about it yet a law enforcement officer might see 20 30 80 of these in their career and somehow we think that law enforcement officers are this thing that is not affected by it but i assure you that they're very much human and uh, officer wellness is something that we need to we need to focus more on. You know, when when something is broken, when someone is broken in the service of others, I think we have a moral and fiduciary responsibility to fix that what has been broken in in the service of our communities. And I, I want to thank you for for helping us signal that through the Department of Justice and recognizing that officer wellness is a, such an important factor for us to be addressing even before all of this unrest in the shortage. Because what we're seeing now, law enforcement officers who are not leaving a job, who are yeah. staying here because they're committed to their communities, they're working longer hours, they're exposed to more, yeah. and then they have more stress than they've ever had before. Well, what about their wellness? You know, So we, we, really, we really need to, to, to focus our energy on fixing officers before they're broken. And look, I don't think that we are doing enough. I don't think that we are even at the Department of Justice yet, which is why when we had this meeting, um, you know, recently to talk about uh, officer mental health and wellness, it was really important that the eight, the attorney general deputy and I were hearing from you, Pat, hearing from Jim, hearing about what resources we need to add and to do better on. And it's why I, this is a huge issue. Uh, it is one that I think is really underappreciated. Uh, we've been seeing a surge in suicides as well among officers. There's been, you know, uh, it, it's been a major issue that we need to put more resources behind and we need to get real about this problem. And I think the FOP is such an important voice for kind of bringing bringing home the real live impact, life impact of continuous trauma and, uh, and making sure that we can do more and do better to provide supports and services 
um, for officers that need it. And really, frankly, across and up and down the department, there's, you know, staff, professional staff, non-professional staff and the like. But this is a big issue that I think we're only really scratching the surface of so far. And we're going to rely on on you to be able to continue to hear from uh, your members about what more we can do to help support. Now it's uh, in, in every uh, every every dollar we invest in this is really protecting the investment of communities across this country. I agree. There's, you know, when people say, I mean, there, there's zero question that if you can actually deal with these issues, it has a direct impact also on the communities that are being served. And I think there's just, it has an impact on the families of officers. It has an impact on the communities that officers are serving. And obviously it has major impact and could be, be the life-changing thing for officers themselves. You know, Vanita, there are the Department of Justice uh, runs uh, grant funding for law enforcement, something that's so vitally important to to the advancement of and the professionalism of our of our you know of agencies across this country. And, and we've seen some struggles over time of of, of some of the grant funding. The question about the where they are, where they're going to, where we're going with grant funding, and and we know that the president's budget included a lot of uh, funds in order to be able to 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 fund these these different programs that are needed. Can you? Can you talk just a little bit about uh, some of the funding that we can we'll see coming down uh, with the with the president's new budget? Yeah, I mean, so as I said, this is going to be historic raises in the budget and close to thirty eight billion dollars for law enforcement for fighting crime. Every year, last year, for example, we gave out four and a half billion dollars of monies to every district in the country, uh, and um, we give out close to a billion just for law enforcement alone. Um, because our, our mission is to protect public safety and and defend the rule of law. And uh, and so this is monies that either through our uh, burn JAG uh, uh, assistance program or through our COPS program, we have a range of programs and services that we fund that pertain to, uh, we just talked about a few COPS hiring uh, program, the community policing programs, the programs to support mental health and officer wellness. Yes. And every year we are also learning from the field about where those needs are. And this money is really important. We've got money that we give out to every district that's mandated by Congress. And then we have money that we call discretionary, which is the grants money where jurisdictions apply. I know the FOP has been a big champion of the Bulletproof Vets program, and we're about to go live with that solicitation. Uh, we've got a bunch of solicitations coming out. Our chips, our COPS hiring program is about to come out again for next year. And so this work, as you said, gets to support law enforcement, gets to support best practices in community policing. Uh, we can support kind of pilot initiatives. There's been a lot of partnerships between mental health professionals and law enforcement officers that we've been helping to pilot and so that we can scale them and get them into every part of the country that wants them. Uh, and and so, and what we're also doing is to identify the gaps where we should be funding and, and aren't, or we right. aren't doing enough. And we're really excited that on Wednesday, April 27th, we're going to be launching a new initiative. The, it's called the Knowledge Lab that is really taking after what the they have in Great Britain called the UK College on, on Crime and Policing. And it's to create a set of resources that aggregates all of the different research, technical assistance, funding that we have done at the Justice Department since 2001 to basically provide real-time resources to law enforcement. 
on things like we may discover that there are some really great officer wellness programs that we should be scaling up and funding more around the country. We may discover that there's communities that have been able to really create some creative ways to address youth violence or gun violence. How can we then promote that to the field? How can we hear from you about what you all are need from the Justice Department? This is a formal kind of entity that is going to support both uh, the fight against crime to support uh, constitutional policing, to support law enforcement agencies where they're at. It's going to be uniquely tailored. If there's one, it's going to address rural uh, communities as well as urban communities. We know it's not one size fits all in yeah. policing in this country. So we want to meet agencies where the needs are. Uh, I'm really excited about this because in some ways it's kind of shocking to me that this kind of didn't exist at the Justice Department, but I hope that it's really going to serve the field well, and we will continue to kind of hear from the field about what what you all need and how we can best support. Well, I can tell you, we're pretty excited about it as well, and, and thank you. There is a need for it, uh, and, and and as we as we said earlier, it really is not a problem we can't solve if we're all committed to do so. So these additional resources will only only have positive results for us throughout the country. We're just honored to be part of it and and appreciate uh, appreciate this this partnership. So uh, yeah, we'll wrap things up. Uh, you know, it, we're in we're in a, a strange time right now in law enforcement. We're kind of in that transition. We see we see things kind of swinging back to you know public uh, overwhelmingly supports law enforcement. We're still dealing with still trying to struggle with uh, with a lot of uh, a lot of issues. Um, but the path forward uh, is one that uh, that that can only can only accomplish be accomplished if we if there's collaboration. Um, maybe some closing thoughts. Uh, you know, what would you say to the public? What would you say to agencies as we navigate through these uh, these times and, and our members as well? Look, I agree with you completely. My big thing is that um, I firmly believe that we are not kind of stuck in this place of intense polarization, of a place where there could, there's demonization and the like. I think that in some ways uh, that it really is about being able to hear each other and come together to drive solutions. And it's why, honestly, just at a personal level and a professional level, my continuous engagement with the FOP the attorney general's continued engagement and kind of hearing from the FOP and your members is so vital, but it gives me hope as well, to be honest. I think that it's easy sometimes to be stuck and feel a sense of despair about where things are, where things, uh, you know, where, where it feels like things are right now. But I actually believe that there's so much that we are going to be able to drive uh, towards together and that we can get through this time of polarization. And I'm just grateful to be able to have this relationship with you and Jim and your members and that you all know how to reach me on my cell phone every day. But I firmly believe that if we can actually have some humility to understand that we don't have all of the solutions, none of us do. And that if we can hear each other a little bit more and kind of roll our sleeves up, we may not always agree, but uh, I am uh, I'm a hopeful person about these issues. And I think that there's a lot that we're going to drive uh, together towards progress. Well, I, I uh, for the attorney general and the entire staff, uh, I can tell you that uh, I know I very much appreciate. Uh, I know Jim and our members do uh, our ability to be able to have these frank and open discussions on on and be included in the in the discussion. Uh, I. I I often tell our members I could not be prouder of the relationship we have with the Department of Justice and and, and know that you're a big part of that. 
Uh, so, so thank you for, for allowing us to be part of the solution and have these meaningful discussions on how we improve our criminal justice system moving forward. Pat, thank you. It's a shared sentiment. And I also just want to say thank you to your members, uh, to you and to Jim and to your members for the public service you all do every day for our communities. Right. And thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us today for The Blue View, where we talk about those issues that are so important to the men and women who suit up and show up in communities all across this country every single day and make a difference in the lives of those they serve. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of The Blue View, hosted by Patrick Yost, National President of the Fraternal Order of Police. To catch our next episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. To get the latest from the National FOP, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at GLFOP and on Instagram at FOP National. Thanks again. See you next time.